going to grab more of those. Uh, what else? Tomorrow uh, on the patio at 6 p.m., there's going to be a meeting for Vacation Bible School for those that would like to come out and get involved with the decorating and the set building and all those types of things. So that's at 6 p.m. tomorrow. And then I think the last thing I wanted to mention, right after service tonight, we are going to stack the chairs in here and take them out. Um, and so we're going to stack them eight high. This middle section right here, it's, different, it's a different chair than these ones. So these all got to stay together. And then if we stack these eight high, we, if, if, you, if you can stick around and help us, I'm just assuming. I'm just assuming you're going to help. We just want to make them nice, clean stacks, though, so the legs hit. Otherwise, if, you're, if your stack starts going like this, that's not good. And, and then we're going to take them out. And then tomorrow, we're getting a desperately needed carpet cleaning in the room here. So you guys got to quit spilling your coffee everywhere. It's just so... <laughs> So we're going to do that right after service, and, and that should, a lot of hands should make that go pretty quick. So uh, let's get into God's Word, Deuteronomy. Last week we started the chapter, and we saw, I mean the book, and we saw Deuteronomy, it means uh, second law or uh, uh, a repeating of the law. And indeed it is, because that first generation that left Egypt, who did not have faith to go into the promised land, has all but passed away, except for Joshua and Caleb, and a few others that were still going to pass before, again, they would now go into the promised land. And what's going on is that there is a repeating of the law, equipping them to go into the new land to honor God. There's also a recapping of several events that's happened in the last 40 years out of the wilderness. And in the recapping of these events, it is kind of a twofold reason to encourage them in the good things that they did in those 40 years in the wilderness, um, to also have them learn from the mistakes of their fathers in the wilderness that those would be corrected. And really what we see going on tonight is the Lord building their faith to go into that promised land because in those last years there in the wilderness, the last few years, the Lord began to give them victory over the nations east of the Jordan. And giving them victory over those nations was in part to build their faith to go into Canaan, which, again, was a land of giants. It was a land that was very fortified with warist individuals. But remember, time of judgment had come upon those people. That uh, some four or five hundred years earlier, God talked to Abraham about them, that eventually they would be judged for their sin. But at that time had not come because... And, and we looked at this in our study in the books before, though they were a people that practiced sin, they were still ashamed of much of their sin. But now they've come to a place where not only are they not ashamed of their sin, they parade it. It's just become their culture. And you find in the scripture, when nations come to a place where they are no longer ashamed of their sin, but they celebrate their sin and they promote their sin, that judgment comes next. And we need to pray for our nation. Can we say amen to that? Because... Uh, we're, we're, we're very close to that place uh, when it comes to a, a lot of the mindset in this land. So God was bringing Israel in there to judge those nations. We'll talk about another reason why he was bringing in there as well to, again, to wipe them out. But even more so, he was bringing them in to give them that promised land. Because, again, Israel has exploded as a nation in their population. Now they're going to inherit the land that God deeded to them. So they would be a people set aside for what? To bring forth the Messiah of the world. I mean, that's what this is all about. 
a nation set aside, that through them all the families would be, of the earth would be blessed tonight. We are blessed, why? Because Jesus Christ came from the tribe of Judah out of the nation of Israel. Uh, we just talked about in a communion. He lived a sinless life. He laid down his life for us, took the wrath due us upon himself. And of course, Sunday's resurrection Sunday. He rose from the grave three days later. And in that, he defeated sin, death, and Satan that any and all who would repent and call on him, ask him to be Lord. And that really faith in the Lord and repentance, it's the same thing. If you're asking Jesus to be your Lord, you're saying, I'm no longer Lord. I'm turning from my own Lordship to put my faith in him. And beautifully, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So with that said, the first chapter, again, we looked at some recapping. We see more of that here in Deuteronomy 2. Let's just read a section at a time and talk about it. And there's a lot of practical application for us in these chapters when it comes to our walk with the Lord. So let's read verses 1 through uh, 7 to start. It says, Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness of the way of the sea, as the Lord spoke to me, and we skirted Mount Seir for many days. And the Lord spoke to me, saying, You have skirted this mountain long enough. Turn northward and command the people, saying, You are about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. And they will be afraid of you, therefore watch yourselves carefully. Do not meddle with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as one footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall buy food from them with money, and you shall eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you and all the work of your hand, he knows you're trudging through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord, your God, has been with you. You have lacked nothing. There's like tons of life lessons in those seven verses. First of all, again, they'd been out there in the wilderness, and they'd come to the place, remember, where they were, they were, they, they'd been sent the long way, and they're going around Mount Seir, which we talked a lot about last week. Mount Seir is Petra. Uh, it is in modern day Jordan. Petra is a fortified city that uh, many people mocked the Bible for several hundred years, saying that it was a made up place. The book of Obadiah talks about the city of Petra. And um, it, it, if, if you've ever seen pictures, if, if you've ever gone there, it is just phenomenal. It's, it's a very narrow entrance. Again, it is fortified, it is up in a mountainous area. And they say a civilization, over a million people, lived in this place. I mean, there's temples carved in it. There are storefronts. Uh, they had a full aqueduct system. Today, the Jordanians have made it a tourist destination. And they say about 2 million people could be housed in modern-day Petra. But for, again, hundreds of years, it was one of those things that, oh, yeah, the Bible's not true. Mount Seir, Petra, that's no place. And then I think it was in the 1800s, I believe, that a Christian archaeologist came across it. And guess what he find? Petra. Can you imagine that being lost for that long? And so this is what they're skirting. And we talked about it last week. Whenever you see Edom, whenever you see Mount Seir, it's a reference to Petra. It's the third most mentioned city in the Bible. We'll talk just a little bit more about it in future events here in a second. But they're skirting the mountain and uh, they've been there for quite a long time. And it's probably a combination of maybe feeling protection. You know, it's skirting Mount Seir and at the same time getting discouraged because you can only skirt a mountain so long before you're like, hey, when are we going to quit skirting the mountain and get moving? 
And so they were in that place, and then the Lord spoke to him, and he says, you've skirted the mountain long enough, it's time to turn northward. And listen, I think there's a great application to our life. Sometimes, listen, we get into a place where we skirt un- uh, next to something, and we cleave onto something too long, and it's time to move forward. It's time to, again, move upward and northward in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we skirt uh, you know, too close to certain things, Maybe it's a certain attitudes that we have, you know, it comfort sins uh, and ways that, you know, it, it comes to a point where it's just not God's way anymore. And it's time to break away from that and move upward and forward in the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe that's where some of you are tonight. Maybe one of you is in that place tonight. And I would just pray it would be encouragement to you that when it's time to move forward in the Lord and he's pressing that upon your heart or you see it clearly in scripture that you take that step of faith and you do that. And I just thought of Philippians 3, 13 and 14. It says, brother, and I do not count myself as apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things that which are ahead, I press towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, as Paul is saying, I'm not going to skirt around the things of the past. It's time for me to move forward in the Lord. And sometimes that can be, again, maybe sins and things we've wrestled with long enough and we come to that place where we finally said, I'm sick of it, I'm moving forward in the Lord. But at times it also can be, you know what, victories and past, you know, uh, revival and so forth. And people begin to cleave onto that and hold on to that. And they forget, well, wait about, what about today? And what about tomorrow? It's like, praise God, Lord willing, this Sunday we'll be out in the park for Resurrection Sunday. And, um, you know, I already mentioned in the past, we've seen so much fruit in that outreach. But wouldn't it be a horrible thing if this year we said, well, we're not going to go out there. We're just going to come together and we're going to celebrate last year's outreach and the year before. That's what we're going to do. We're not actually going to go out. I think that'd be a big mistake. I think we look back and we celebrate what God did in the past, but let's not skirt around that. Let's say, hey, let's go out and trust in the Lord as we've prayed, as we do each year, and led by the Lord to go out. You know what, let, let's, let's move forward and upward and praise God for those things, but leave them behind and move forward in the Lord. So he's telling them to do that, and he says, and moving forward in this interaction with the descendants of Esau that are out at Mount Seir or at Petra, you're going to come through there and they're going to be afraid of you. And remember, at this point, Israel's population is probably two to five million folks. So could you imagine two to five million folks circling San Luis Obispo County? They're going to be afraid of you, he says. He says, therefore, you need to be watchful. You need to be careful. He's basically saying, you don't, I'm telling you, don't bully them. Do not intimidate them. Be gentle with them. Be like Christ. Because he goes on to say, I gave them that lamb. Remember, Israel or Jacob had a brother named Esau. Remember, they fought in their mother's womb. And these were relatives of the Israelites. They weren't like the Canaanites whom God was sending Israel into the land of Canaan to judge. He said, I've given them that that land. I've deeded it to them. And uh, so as you pass through, he says, don't meddle with them, which means don't contend with them or don't stir up strife with them. And listen, this is a good word for for us as well. you know what? God's calling us not to stir up strife, not to stir up nonsense. There are several passages in the New Testament where it tells us not to be busybodies in other people's businesses and in other people's 
matters. First uh, Peter four fifteen speaks of that. Second um, Thessalonians chapter three talks about us again not walking in a disorderly manner, working with our own hands and not being busybodies. But unfortunately, from time to time, you read a you meet a Christian who's a busybody, right? Anyone ever? Someone that meddles, someone that contends, someone that stirs up strife. Sometimes even people that use their Christianity to intimidate others, to bully them and so forth. And we're not called to that. We are called to be gentle in the Lord Jesus Christ. He also says, listen, I gave them that land, so don't you dare go in there and try to take it from them. I've deeded that to them. And he says, in fact, when you go through there, not only do not take anything from them, but if you eat any of their food, you need to buy it with money. And if you drink any of their water, you need to buy it with money. Listen, one of the worst things in the world is a Christian running around thinking everything should be free for them because they're a child of the king. You ever meet anyone like that? I'm a child of the king, so I'm going to get a discount. I'm going to get a freebie and so forth. He says, don't do that. I've given this to them. You go buy it with money. And then notice verse 7. It's a wonderful word. He says, for the Lord has blessed you and all the works of your hands. He knows you're trudging through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord, your God, has been with you, and you have lacked nothing. So he says, you need to go and give them a solid. You need to go and bless them and do that knowing I've blessed you. I've given you that money so that you can go out and bless them. And you can bless them by buying from them the food and the water. And you should rejoice because you've been in the wilderness trudging through it for the last 40 years, even in much disobedience, and I have been faithful to you every step along the way. And when we start to get a mentality that, again, as a Christian, I need to get a deal on everything, that, you know what, it's okay for me to fudge the books a bit or to manipulate a situation, we gotta understand we're not trusting in God. He wants us to trust in him in those things. To step back and say, look how God's provided for me. Look how God has gone before me. And I think it's a really dangerous place. You know what, if God provides a discount, that's okay, right? I'm not, you don't want to give me a discount? Okay, I'll take the discount. But it's very easy to fall into a place where we almost put more faith in men giving us that discount than God giving us an abundance to pay full price plus to give a tip on the top. And what do you think is a greater witness to the world? He's basically telling them, be a witness to your brother Esau. Listen, the, first, the, the promise of the gospel came first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And the Jew was to be salt and light to the Gentile world around them, even though, again, they are both descendants of Abraham. They're both Semitic in that sense. But again, the promise was given to Israel. And I know the Lord wants us to have that mentality in our dealings and so forth. Let me look to be a blessing to others. And in doing that, I need to know I'm walking by faith. And God's going to, again, provide for me even all the more. I'd rather put my trust in God's hands with my finances than in man's hands. Can we say amen to that? Now, verse 8 through 23 is pretty interesting because what we're going to see now is in their journeys next after Esau's descendants, they would pass through where Lot's descendants were. I remember Lot was uh, Abraham's nephew when he left Ur of the Chaldean and he went by faith again across the Jordan. Lot came with him, and uh, it's a pretty ugly scene what happened with Lot. Uh, there you get into Genesis, I believe it's, is it chapter 18, 19, somewhere in there, 
where, uh, well, before that, Lot and Abraham have to split up because God's blessed both of them so abundantly where it comes to the point where their shepherds are fighting amongst one another over the land and so forth. So basically Abraham says, listen, you choose what direction you want to go and I'll go in the other direction. Listen, we're still brothers and brothers and so forth, but we need to split up. And we saw Lot really not praying to God, but looking with his eyes and he looked down towards the plains of Sodom and he saw that it was well watered and he saw that it was very fortified and he didn't ask God to be led by the spirit. Instead, he was led with his eyes. And he went towards Sodom. The next thing you know, he's on the outskirts of Sodom. The next thing you know, it says he's in the gate of Sodom. And he had become part of the leadership in Sodom. Uh, But he should have prayed because Sodom was a very, very wicked place. And great rebellion against the living God. Steeped in homosexuality that they were no longer ashamed of, but they celebrated. He said this is the normal thing when it is sin against God and it's outside of God's plan for us, just as fornication is between heterosexuals and adultery between heterosexuals. They very much celebrated that. And God told Abraham that I'm going to go judge that city because their sin has reached to the heights of heaven. And one thing that happens when nations get so rebellious, they begin to think that, listen, we've done this so long and we keep getting away with it. Surely God has forgotten. Surely God will never judge us. But you look at the history of the world and judgment always comes. So we know Abraham knew about that. Remember, he began to pray to God, well, if there's 50 righteous, will you destroy the city? And he says, if there's 50 righteous, I won't. And Abraham whittles the Lord all the way down to to 10. And um, unfortunately, there wasn't 10 righteous because as God began to bring the destruction to the earth or to, to Sodom, obviously, there wasn't 10. But it says that God remembered Abraham's prayer And because of Abraham's prayer, remember the Lord sent two angels in to drag out Lot, his wife, and his two daughters. Now, they were hesitant. They were like, well, let us get our stuff before, uh, you know, we get out of here. And basically, the angels had to drag them out. And I think that's a picture of the rapture. When the Lord comes back, there's going to be some Christians that God has to drag out of here. You don't want to be in that place. And listen, if you are born again, you're going at the rapture, even if, you know, you're in the movies or whatever. I know some people say, hey, you know, if you're doing this, God won't take you. If, you. if Jesus is your Lord, he's taking you. But what you don't want is him taking you with you holding on to the world and him having to peel your hands off it with Lot. What you want is him coming and the Lord taking you and having to peel the hands of the world trying to keep you down as you're wanting to move forward in the Lord. But with Lot, God had to drag him out Uh, his wife and his two daughters. And remember, the angel said, don't look back. And unfortunately, we all know this, right? Lot's wife looked back. And and it was like, I left my heart in Sodom. I think you heard a song about that, right? And she looked back. Huh. No. And she turned into a pillar of salt. But Lot got out with his two daughters The angel said, hey, go escape over to this place. And then Lot's like, it's too far for me. I'm fragile. So he says, okay, you can go over here instead, which was outside of God's perfect will. And remember, he's there with his two daughters. And then they begin to lean on their own understanding. And it's just sad because, you know, this was a reflection of Sodom. It was a reflection of where their father had raised them, the influence he allowed to have upon them. And they begin to say, listen, it's just us and our dad and we're never going to have children, you know, and they'd only been there for a short time. And they come up with this thought, let's liquor our dad up and then 
I'll lay with him tonight, the one daughter says, and then you can lay with him tomorrow so that we could have children. Listen, there's some rough and rugged and raw stuff in the scriptures. It, it, it gets into the nitty gritty of our sin. And they both conceive and they both have children that would go forth and birth nations, one being the Moabites and the other being the Ammonites. They too, though, were relatives of Israel. And so like with Esau, the Lord tells them, and I'm actually not going to read this. I'm going to reference it in verse 8 through 9. And then down in verse 13 through 19, he basically says the exact same thing to him concerning the descendants of Esau. Listen, when you go through there, I gave them the land where they are. Don't take it from them. Again, pay your way and so forth. And know that, again, they are your relatives. So don't harass them. Don't meddle with them. And be upright and honor me concerning them. Now, what's fascinating is in verse 10 through 12 and 20 through 23, we see some very fascinating scriptures that talk about, and we touched on this a little bit last week, these giants that we see at times in the Old Testament. And this had to do with, in part, the reason why God said when you go into the land of Canaan to wipe them out completely because of these giants that were in the land. And basically, we'll read this, but in 10 through 12 and then 20 through 23, it talks about how the descendants of Lot destroyed the giants that were in the land that God gave them, but ultimately, the Lord's the one that destroyed them. Before we read that, though, and talk about the four names we read here, I want to, I touched on it briefly last week, and we've touched on it a little bit in our study up thus far in the scriptures. I want to talk a little bit about these giants. First of all, when you start talking about giants, you know, people think of Jack and the Beanstalk and whatnot, and they think, okay, this is just fairy tale stuff, you know, that this, this, this can't be real. But if you actually go and look at real history and archaeological digs all over the world, there are indeed giants that are found everywhere. You find them on every continent, including our own. Uh, you could go, and there are so many newspaper articles uh, in the 1800s, uh, early 1900s, 1700s, American newspapers talking about, hey, yeah, they just dug up and they found bones that if you built the body around that bone that was found, this would be a nine foot and a half, you know, individual. There's one place over in Wisconsin, somewhere up in that area, I believe, where they found a tribe of redheaded giants that ranged between like seven and 10 feet. Uh, these bones are found all over the world. It is something that individuals that have agendas to promote that we descended from apes want to cover up very, very much because it blows up. It's another thing that just blows up the whole idea of evolution. You know, if all of a sudden you have these giants and so forth. But the Bible talks about these things. And listen, I know some people, you start talking about this and it makes them very uncomfortable. They start to sweat a little bit. And they're like, hey, well, let's have a theological discussion. How are we going to explain away these giants? You can't. And listen, it's still God's word. And just because it might make you uncomfortable does not make it untrue because it is. And so what we find in the scripture is before the flood came, the Bible speaks about giants that came upon the land. And again, you read about this early on in Genesis. Genesis chapter 6 start talking about this, 
where it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they came down and they laid with them and they had children. And what you see going on there is that were certain angels that did not fall with that initial rebellion with Lucifer that fell after the fact. There was a temptation put before them. They saw the daughters of men. They fell. We know from Hebrews and in other places that angels can take on the appearance or the form of people. Remember in Hebrews it says, be careful in entertaining strangers because in doing so you may be entertaining angels. So remember that tomorrow if a stranger comes up to you. That might be an angel. It could very much be. And so we see that in scripture and we see that again before the flood that they gave birth to giants. And when the Bible talks about giants, you can study this again in the Hebrew. It's not talking about guys with giant personalities. You know, that's a, you know they, just, they were men of renown, giant personalities. No, these guys were freaks. They were giants. I mean, when you take, again, however it works, the, the, the seed of an angel and bring it with a, again, woman, a woman's egg, you're going to get a hybrid. You're, you're going to get something that is not normal. Now, again, a lot of people step back and they say, well, why was this going on? Why was this going on? And, and biblically, if, again, you, you look at things, it's very simple, the answer. Remember, God, after man's sin, said through the seed of the woman would come what? The savior of the world. That, that through the seed of the woman would come the savior. The serpent would bruise his heel, but that savior would crush the serpent's head. So what does Satan know he need to do? If I can distort that seed, I can prove God is a liar and there will be no savior. And so before the flood, again, this was a orchestrated effort by Lucifer to get these angels to fall, to pollute, to pollute the sin of mankind so that the Savior could not be born. And this is why you see Adam's genealogy all the way down to Noah's, you know, it distinct and it talks about Noah's being, Noah being a righteous man. That had to do with Noah's faith. It also had to do with Noah's genetics. They had not, you know what, they had not gotten the seed of these giants, again, in their genealogy. And this explains why, as well, God would flood the earth. Why not just bring a revival, you know? Why not just raise up a prophet to bring men to repentance? It was a reboot, a start over, because the genetics of man had gotten so distorted. And so, again, the flood came, Noah and his wife his sons and their wives came through the flood, and it was soon after the flood, again, a few generations in, Abraham is born, and God says, listen, I'm gonna birth a nation to separate this nation from these other pagans so that, again, a nation is gonna be a more secure vessel to bring forth the savior of the world. And this is why, again, you read the Old Testament and you see all the begots and so forth. It's tracing that genealogy. I'm getting excited here. From, from Adam all the way down to Joseph and Mary. Again, Joseph was not the Lord's uh, natural father, but again, he was heir to the throne of Israel through Joseph and Mary of the tribe of Judah. And the savior of the world came as the Holy Spirit did what? Overshadowed the virgin. So Christ was born without a sin nature to bring forth the savior of the world. And so that's why that was going on. And listen, you can go read in, in 2 Peter chapter two if you wanna research this and go read in the book of Jude and what's it talk about? Angels that left their natural abode to go after what? Strange flesh. So this is confirmed in the, New, in the New Testament that went after women and it says that those angels that fell are reserved in a place of darkness right now. They're not roaming around the earth like Satan and those other fallen angels. 
There's many people that even believe in the revelation where it talks about the abyss being opened up, that those angels will be loosed for a short time. You talk about hell on earth, it's gonna be a horrific time. So you see this in scripture. Well, again, we see that after the flood, this began to happen again. That these giants began to appear again from no doubt angels once again being tempted to leave their natural abode and to, again, take on women, the daughters of men. We'll read this passage here together and in these two passages and talk a little bit more about this. One side note, though, there's just a thought, and, and I think it's very interesting, where there are some people that say there is a difference between fallen angels and demons. And you read in Ephesians, it talks about powers and principalities and you know, uh, rulers of darkness and, and so forth. And then you also read about unclean spirits and familiar spirits in the scripture. And it almost seems as if there is a distinction between fallen angels and demons. Demon, it means devil man in, in uh, the Greek. And there's many people that think that demons are actually the spirits of these giants because they're not human. It's like they're, they're this hybrid. And this is why many people think that's why in the scripture you see demons always wanting to possess men. They want to have control of a body again. Again, it's just a thought. Um, it, it's just something to consider. Um, um, it's not a hill that I'm going to die on by any means. There's no reason to. And even with all this, be careful with this because there's some people that start reading about this because it's super fascinating and they start rabbit trailing and then all they want to talk about are the Nephilim and the giants and so forth. Listen, don't go down that rabbit trail. There are some guys, they they build a whole ministry around this and, oh, I'm going to have another conference this weekend about the Nephilim, you know, and all these people come out with tinfoil hats on and, you know, and so forth. Because in the scriptures, again, remember, it says in the days of Noah or in the days of the son of man will be like the days of Noah. And so some people start saying, oh boy, certainly there's going to be giants again and so forth. We're not going to get through chapter three. There's going to be giants again and Shaq and whatnot. (laughs) You know, there's always been big people. My thought on this is this. I I don't believe we're going to actually have fallen angels again inbreeding with the daughters of men creating these types of giants. My personal thought is though, when people take the mark of the beast, my personal thought, I'm not even gonna die on this hill, but I see it more and more, most likely, in my opinion, being the case, I believe when men take the mark of the beast, it's gonna alter their DNA. It's gonna alter their DNA. And and it explains why you would take the mark and then no longer be able to be saved because it seems that in taking that mark, you're saying, I I do not wanna be in the image of God, I wanna be in the image of Satan. Because there's going to be a promise of eternal life. And if you start studying, there's a guy named Ray Kurzweil uh, and these, these other guys that work, they're high ups with Google, Facebook, and so forth. Right now, they're working on things to alter DNA so men can live a thousand years on earth. And Ray Kurzweil, he's one of the leading guys. These aren't, these aren't some whack jobs over in the corner. These are leading scientists, multi-billionaire access and and. You talk about nanobots today and things to go in and alter DNA. And Ray Kurzweil, who everything he said is going to come true for the most part with scientific discoveries, keeps happening over and over and over again. He keeps saying, you know, if I can live 20 more years, I can live 1,000 more years. And it seems almost with all of the things they're doing now with DNA and altering DNA, my thought again is that that mark's going to alter DNA and people are going to have a promise. You're going to live a thousand years, and they're going to say, "I'm going to take the beast over God." Just a thought. 
Because again, you also see that once they take that, they're gonna know when you're worshiping the beast and if you're not worshiping the beast and you'll be monitored 24 seven, which we probably already are monitored 24 um, seven. But you know, it, 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 the flood makes sense. There's a reason for it. And it seems to me that would make sense why as well now the Lord's gonna destroy the earth with fire because the days of Noah are like the days of the son of man. Again, just my thought there, my opinion there, you can take it or leave it or do whatever you want with it. But notice verse 10 through 12, it says, uh, it's talking about, again, the descendants of Moab, um, Lot's, Lot's son, and he's also his grandson. <laughs> you did the math on that, so. <laughs> this is my son, and this is my grandson, you know. <laughs> then Emmon, the Emmon had dwelt there in times past. Again, this is where they settled a people as great and numerous as tall as the Anakim. And they were also regarded as giants like the Anakim, but the Moabites called them Emim. The Horites formerly dwelt in Seir, but the descendants of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them, uh, from before them and dwelt in their place just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave them. Because again, in Canaan, they went and these giants were in there. And so they said, just as Israel did and was going to do, the Moabites went and did. And then if you go down to verse 20 through 23, this is what the Ammonites, the Ammonites, the other descendant of Lot, his other son slash grandson, and the nation that came from them did in the land they settled. In verse 20, it says, that was also regarded as the land of giants. Giants formerly dwelt there. But the Ammonites called them uh, Zamzuman, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed before them, destroyed them before them, and they dispossessed them and dwelt in their place just as he had done for the descendants of Esau who dwelt in Seir. When he destroyed the Horites from before them, they dispossessed them and dwelt in their place even to this day. And the Avim who dwelt in villages as far as Gaza, we know where that's at. The Kaftruim, who came from Kaftor, destroyed them and dwelt in their place. And so probably with these giants, if you're familiar at all with them, a lot of times people refer to them as Nephilim. That's another name for them. And then we see four names for these people as well. And it's interesting. There's so much you can learn from a name in the Bible. It's interesting. It talks about the giants called Eman. And imam in the Hebrew, it means dread, terror, but it also means idol, which implies that these were giants that brought terror upon men and forced men to worship them. They became idols. Listen, there's a lot that you can learn from hieroglyphics. There's a lot that you can learn from ancient art. That's how they communicated back then. And boy, you start looking at ancient art you know, and hieroglyphics, and what do you see in almost, you know, it seems like half the caves in the world on every continent, you see little men, and what are they doing? They are worshiping big men. You see it all over. You, you can see it in Egypt. You can see it in the Babylonian, you know, archives and so forth. And what this seems to indicate is that these giants forced, you know what, normal men to worship them, or they even willingly worship them because they were godlike. They were not God, but godlike being little gods in the way they operated and so forth. Again, the text seems to bring that forth. The Anakim, it means to choke out. That's what Anakim means. 
And again, it goes back, in my opinion, the idea they were there to try to choke out the seed of the Messiah. We're going to choke out this promise. Listen, today Satan runs around. You know what he wants to do? He wants to choke out the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't want that going forward. The Horites, this means crevice of a serpent or cave dweller. That's what the Horites mean. And again, you think about Satan who dwells in darkness. And again, the serpent that tempted uh, Eve and so forth. And again, the idea of the enemy coming against the gospel. And then the Zamzuman, it means wicked device. And again, these groups, you look at them, it's a wicked device to come against the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in all of it, what's it say? It says the Lord destroyed them. And here's one thing you need to know is that the Lord always prevails. And his plan always prevails. And he prevails in his perfect timing. So listen, in our life, we might not be dealing with physical giants. But boy, sometimes we deal with giant sins, don't we? And giant struggles. And giant fears. And giant trials and tribulations and persecutions and giant backstabbings. And fill in the blank. Can anyone bear witness to that? But one thing we got to know is we keep our eyes on Jesus. He's always going to bring victory. He's always going to be faithful. And he's always going to bring it in his perfect timing. Verse 24, he gets back to addressing Israel. He says, rise and take your journey and cross over the river Arnon. Look, I have given into your hand Shion, the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it and engage him in battle This day I will begin to put dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven who shall hear the report of you and you shall tremble and and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So what's going on is there's some recounting of victories they had as they're heading towards, again, the promised land that we read about in Joshua But along the way, he's saying, listen, now go and overthrow this king and have victory over them. And these were nations, again, that were under judgment. It wasn't just all the nations there west of the Jordan in Canaan or modern-day Israel. It was some of the nations east of the Jordan as well. And so he he says, you're going to go in there, rise up and take your journey, again, with the knowledge of all the victory that I have given to you and to Lot's descendants and Esau's descendants, I'm going to give you that victory. Uh, Don't resist this call like your fathers did. And as you go forth, he says, I'm going to put fear and dread upon the enemy. Oh, listen, we need to hear this. We've talked a lot about this lately, especially on Wednesday night. One of the enemy's greatest tools is to put fear and dread in the heart of the Christian. Boy, that's the devil's playground. He paralyzes with fear. He paralyzes with dread. You ever have something going up in your life? You're like, I'm dreading that. Maybe some of you tonight, you're already, oh yeah, you just reminded me of that, Steve. I came here at a nice dinner, Bible study. You just reminded me what I'm dreading. It's the enemy's playground. Listen, fear causes to shrink back. Why did not the first generation go into the promised land? They saw the giants and they were full of fear. Even though God, who had just delivered them out of Egypt, out of the superpower of the world, the Egyptians owned those giants, literally. They owned their land. Those were the Egyptian slaves. Those pyramids that you, read, you see today, they were probably built by those Canaanite giants. And they said, get down here, you're going to build this. The Egyptians didn't fear them. And God delivered Israel from the Egyptians, miraculously through the shed blood of a lamb, 
split the Red Sea. They walked through it, and that Red Sea came and destroyed the Egyptian army chasing them. And now he says, listen, go into this land, and I'm going to give it to you. And what did they do? Out of fear, because they saw with their eyes versus trusting in the Lord, they shrunk back. And as a result, they trudged around in a wilderness for 40 years. And there's many Christians today that have been delivered by the blood of the Lamb, but instead of moving forward in faith and the things that God has called them to, they have reason or they find reasons to be afraid and they trudge around in a wilderness day after day after day, void of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. What he says here is you move forward by faith, I'm going to spin this and I'm going to put fear and dread upon the enemy. And I can tell you tonight, one thing that Satan dreads and one thing that Satan fears is you stepping out of faith and trusting in the Lord and walking what God has called you to walk in. 26, and we got to get through this fast here because I want to at least finish this chapter. And I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kadmoth to Shion, king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, let me pass through the land. I will keep strictly to the road, and I will turn neither to the right or the left. You shall sell me food for money. Again, this is the trek towards, towards Canaan. That I may eat and give me water for money that I might drink. Only let me pass through on foot just as the descendants of Esau who dwelt in Seir and the Moabites who dwelt in Ar did for me. So again, there was a deal made with the, 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 the descendants of Esau and Lot until I crossed the Jordan to the land which the Lord our God has given you. So again, they, they come here to Heshbon and they say, just let us pass through. We'll pay our way. Verse 30. But Shion, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass through. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into your hand as it is to this day. And you'd have to think, you know, we're going to pass through. The king, of, the king uh, Shion, the king said no. And at first maybe they dreaded it, but God was allowing it to happen because God wanted to give them victory over this king as well. Verse 31. And the Lord said to me, see, I begin to give Shion... Uh, and his land over to you, begin to possess it that you may inherit the land. Then Cheyenne and all his people came out against us to fight at Jahaz. And the Lord our God delivered him over to us and we defeated him, his sons, and all his people. We took all his cities at that time and we utterly destroyed all the men, women, and little ones of every city. We left nothing remaining. We took only the livestock as plunder for ourselves with the spoil of the cities which we took. From Aror, which is at the bank of the river of Arnon, from the city that is in the ravine, as far as Gilead, there was not one city too, too strong for us. Why? For the Lord our God delivered all to us. Only you did not go near the land of the people of Amnon anywhere along the river Jabbok or to the cities of the mountains or whatever the Lord our God forbidden us. So again, the Lord showing them victory as they would head to Canaan to build their faith. It's amazing. Listen, if you want your faith to be built, there's three things you need to do. Read the word of God. Amen. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Ask for faith. I believe, Lord, help me with my unbelief. And then step out in the little steps of faith that you can take and as you see God's faithfulness, it will grow your faith to say, listen, oh, they got me through this step. You know what? I'm gonna take a little bigger one. And he's building their faith as they're headed towards Canaan in these victories. He also tells them, and again, this makes people uncomfortable. Go in there and utterly destroy them. They're men, they're women, and they're little ones. And some people step back and they say, I got it, I got evidence. God is the wicked one. We're righteous down here. 
And I can't wait to judge God on judgment day. It ain't going down like that. We've all transgressed against God. He is holy. We are not. We have transgressed his law. We are sinners. We are damned to hell in our sin. And outside of faith in Christ, we have no future and hope. And these nations who Israel was told to go and utterly destroy had hundreds of years to repent, and they did not. They worshiped demons. They practiced gross sexual immorality. They had come to the place where they were no longer ashamed of their sin. They celebrated their sin. Pray for our nation. Can we say amen to that? They celebrated their sin. They also, again, had been infected with this seed of rebellion. Many of them, again, even genetically. And so he says, when you go in, you need to wipe them out completely. It was a righteous judgment from God. And listen, the judgment on their little ones was the result of their mothers and their fathers' disobedience to God and their utter rebellion against God Almighty. It's tragic. God does not rejoice in death, neither, not even in the death of the wicked. Um, but this is what unfolded when man sinned in that garden and said, I want to be like God. I'll eat of that tree. I believe what the serpent saying is true. God's the bad guy. He knows if I eat of it, I'll be like God. Man, don't ever listen to the lies of the enemy. Walk on the truth of God's word. Heavenly Father, we bless you tonight. We praise you. We thank you for your scriptures, Lord. I would just hope and pray that tonight, God, that faith has grown in our heart, God, that we would be a people not paralyzed by dread and the fear of the enemy, but would trust in you in all things, knowing that you have told us, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And listen, as we close here tonight, you've heard the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. There can only be good news if there's bad news, and the bad news is that we are sinners. Sin brings death, it's rebellion. God is not bringing it into heaven. If we die in our sins, we will face the second death, a place called hell. That's bad news. The good news is that Jesus lived a sinless life, took the wrath through you and me upon himself, laid down his life, took it up, and defeated death and sin. That if tonight you repent and put your faith in Christ to be your Lord, he'll save you and he will wash you and you will be under the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. Call on him if you haven't. Again, the Bible says whoever, it's an all-compassing word. I don't care what you've done, what you've brought in here, what's been done to you, how dirty you may feel. The Lord Jesus Christ loves you. He laid down his life for you. He wants to save you and wash you. Call on him and ask him to do that, and he will. Bless the rest of our night, Lord. We thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.